this evening. We didn't quite get out of the end of the 25th chapter together last time, looking at these different uh, practical topics and insights of wisdom that God's given to us in the book of Proverbs, verse 21 and 22. We'll see God gives to us some instruction here regarding how to wisely navigate our interactions with those who are enemies, with those who perhaps do us wrong or in some ways have angst or uh, animosity towards us in some way. He says in Proverbs uh, chapter 25, verse 21, where we pick up, if your enemy is hungry, the idea is that they have any need, there's something that is in their life that could be helped, uh, rather than uh, ignore them, rather than disregard them. He says, give them something to eat, give them bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will, he says, heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So again, kind of just this simple concept here, rather than the natural reaction uh, when someone is our enemy, when they've done us wrong, when they are seeking to be antagonistic in their treatment towards us, the natural reaction, of course, is not to do something nice for them or helpful for them. But yet God's word encourages us to take the higher road, to go above and beyond that. Again, God is kind and gracious and merciful, and so it's wise to seek to reflect him in his nature, certainly as his sons and daughters. And so here he describes the wisdom of not seeking retaliation against our enemy, which is going to be the natural inclination of our sinful flesh and our humanity but to resist that and instead to seek, like God, in his nature to be gracious, to be kind even, to be merciful, trusting that the Lord will deal with what they have done wrong to you and the Lord will deal with them regarding their wrong behavior and that in doing such, we can trust the Lord to reward us in our right behavior towards them. Now, when he describes here this idea of heaping coals of fire on their head, different people present different ideas of what that means. Obviously, there was some cultural connection. I'll be very candid. I'm not exactly sure what uh, it really is a reference to. Obviously, perhaps maybe in some degree, the overall context of the proverb here seems to indicate something about kind of it. it it brings a measure of shame upon them as they feel almost shamed by your kindness or shamed by your goodness or your mercy towards them when they would expect you to do the exact opposite, maybe, knowing what they've done wrong to you or how they've treated you like an enemy. And, of course, the implication is, is that when you treat them differently, it not only somewhat shames them, but it beckons the Lord to respond by rewarding you for doing the opposite of what your natural reaction would be and by responding in a gracious way. Again, as we look at this, of course, it just reminds us of the heart of Jesus. Remember, Jesus himself tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who spitefully use us. The idea is, again, that, that's a kingdom principle that we would do the opposite of what the world normally does and that we would treat our enemies much differently. Again, from a New Testament perspective, uh, much of this is very emblematic of what Paul says in the end of Romans chapter 12, where he says, bless those who persecute you. It's almost as if Paul builds on Jesus's idea in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And then he goes on in that same chapter to say, repay no one evil for evil, 
have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. And then he goes on to say, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place, he says, to wrath. The idea is give God room, give God place and opportunity to bring about righteous wrath at times, to bring just punishment upon wrongdoers. For it is written, vengeance is mine, God declares. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Sound familiar? Paul's quoting our proverb right there. Paul's using an Old Testament concept from the book of Proverbs as he builds this New Testament theology. And he says, do not overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. So don't let the evil overcome you. Instead, overcome that evil by just showing the goodness and the kindness of God. And again, as we often talk about, notice there's a perfect analogy again of how the best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible, right? Paul's using an Old Testament principle from our proverb here to build New Testament theology of how to treat people in our relationships uh, and giving further light to what the Bible tells us. So again, the wise person says, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to react I'm going to try and respond in a godly way. I'm going to do what's counter to my flesh. And I'm just going to trust you to reward that. And I'm going to trust you to take care of them and to reward me from taking the higher road in those situations. Verse 23, he then goes on here in our Proverbs saying, The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. So this speaks here, the proverb of really what we call cause and effect. Uh, in the same way that the north wind, the cause of that often brings forth rain, the cause and the effect reality. He says the same applies that a backbiting tongue, he says the cause of that will bring about the effect of an angry countenance, that someone ending up being irritated or greatly angered. So when backbiting happens, you can expect, God says, anger as a result. And again, the, the simplest way to think about backbiting is exactly what the word pictures, you know, that you're going to, you know, attack someone. You, you don't attack them from the front where they can see it coming, but instead from behind when their back is to you, when they can't see what you're doing, just the idea, again, is, is kind of coming at them in, a, in an improper way. And, of course, it speaks of, again, rather than chewing someone out, that's what we do from the front, right? <laughs> we, we chew someone out from the front. We just yell at them and we say you know, mean things to them. Backbiting is kind of the opposite. Instead of chewing them out, we chew them up and spit them out behind their back rather than talking to them directly to their face. We instead kind of devour them in front of other people. We say harsh things about them or we are critical about them and we talk about them in unhealthy ways. But, you know, the, the, the downside to that reality is the cause and effect is just like that wind eventually brings in the rainstorm after it. When we get caught up in any way in backbiting as people, eventually wind of that kind of passes around and then the storm comes because eventually it kind of circles around and it ultimately comes out what we said or who we were talking about. And the end result, he says, is you can expect you're going to end up having a person that's pretty angry when they find out about the things you said behind their back. So again, God just cautions us. Wisdom seeks to avoid that so that we don't cause anger in relationships with people. Just you know, better to have enough of a backbone and the courage to just talk to people direct. If you've got an issue with someone, the Bible tells us, just talk to them about it. 
uh, and just speak to them directly. It's a much better approach than going behind their back because eventually it comes around to their face and then they're angry when they find out that you talked about them behind their back. Verse 24, sound familiar by now. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop, he says, than with a house shared with a contentious woman. Now, probably the best commentary I can give there on verse 24 is to say that is the fourth time in the book of Proverbs all about wisdom that God says that same thing. This is the fourth time the same principle is conveyed about this concept, and again, it's almost as if here we are now in chapter 25, verse 24, and this contentious woman still hasn't repented, and this is still going on, and the marriage is still struggling, and there's still this disconnect again because of the the contentious woman that, that the man is being driven away and kind of creating separation because he's just trying to stay away. Again, I'm not going to over-expound our prior studies. We certainly did plenty of that, but I think one thing is to be said for sure. If, if God's repeating something for a fourth time, it's not like, as I've said before, when God repeats things in the Word of God, it's because he couldn't find something else helpful to say. New information, new insight. Again, remember last time we talked about that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter but it's the glory of man to search out a matter. That was the beginning of our study last time and the glory of God to conceal a matter. And one of the things we talked about is God is so great and so incredible that there are certain things that God simply cannot share with us in this earthly existence because they're just too great and there's just so much to know we couldn't handle everything. And so again, when we see repetition in the word of God, we need to realize we're talking about an all-knowing, all-wise, infinite God who could say things to us about so many different things blow our minds for all of eternity we'll be learning, and yet God feels the need for a fourth time to repeat that. So apparently it's a principle that's very valuable, and we should take it to heart. We should remember it in our relationships, that contentious relationships under the same roof and not learning to get along and have harmony as husbands and wives, boy, that can really be destructive because it could cause Levels of separation where somebody really just starts kind of disconnecting emotionally and physically and in levels, there starts bringing a real breach just because there's not harmony. Always be careful of contention. Always seek to facilitate harmony. It's a very important thing, especially in marriage. Verse 25, I said I wasn't going to sermonize and I did on that. I'm sorry. Verse 25, as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. Boy, that's a, a picturesque proverb there. Good news coming from a far country. Again, keep in mind in that day, we're talking about writing that was taking place in a day and age, unlike you know, 2023 now, where literally you can, you know, click on the World Wide Web and know what's going on all over the place. You know, the horrible earthquake that just happened in Turkey this last week and thousands of people perished. But I mean, keep in mind, in prior generations, you would know that. Uh, that information would be something that even if it somehow made it over to our continent, it will be a long period of time. And again, understand, that's one continent to another. Even people who lived in the same regions didn't know what was going on in each other's lives for communication to pass, again, when there was even just the old nothing more than the 
snail mail system and you know, uh, letter carriers on horses and so forth. I mean, it took a long time sometimes for news to get from one place to another. I mean, imagine you get news from the other side of, you know, uh, the country that your, you know, relative, your mother, your father's ill, and we don't know if mom's going to make it. And then you're kind of just sometimes just waiting for months and months on end. And then eventually, you know, a letter finally arrives. Hey, mom recovered. Uh, you know, dad made it, and, and just, wow, oh man, it's just so, because you're waiting so long for that answer, waiting so long for just some good news when you're concerned, and maybe just, you know, really longing to hear something encouraging, and you're downcast, and you're worried about something, or you're just kind of waiting on the edge of what's going to happen in a situation, and that can be really mentally draining, Right? I mean, just emotionally exhausting, just long delays of time between hearing some good news or a change or a turn of events, as we might say. And that can really drain a person. And he says, just like cold water to a weary soul, it's so enjoyable and refreshing to finally get some cold water, right? If you're out working in the fields, it's hot, you're exhausted, nothing's going to quench your thirst like a drink of cold water. And he says, just like when you're weary and thirsty and you're struggling to get by. You're just struggling to keep going. You feel like you're going to faint physically to get cold, refreshing water. He says, the same way when after a long time of waiting, you finally get some good news. After a long time of wondering, is, is anything ever going to change? Are we ever going to hear something good? Are things ever going to turn for the positive? And, and he says, that's what it's like to finally get some good news after a long wait. And boy, maybe tonight, I don't know, you've been kind of in that waiting period and how wonderful it is after maybe a big gap of time. You know, I think of just even this past week, one of the you know emails that my wife and I received about some really good news about a situation with a family that had an extended period of time and difficulty and to finally hear after an extended period, that good news of things taking a, a turn of events and just you know wonderful to be able to hear that after a long duration of praying and uh, seeing something good really starting to turn around and come to pass. Verse 26, he says, a righteous man who falters before the wicked. So again, take notice, faltering before the wicked. The idea is in their presence, they see that righteous person fail, compromise, maybe make a concession He says, is much like a murky spring, a polluted spring that's got muddy water in it, or like a polluted well, well that was intended to be fresh water that could be something that was partaken of. Uh, He says, it's like a well that's gone bad, like a polluted well. So this describes, again, when the godly person who's expected to live right sadly compromises enters into moral failure or sins in some way, but worse, they do it in the presence of the unsaved, or they do it before people who don't know God, who are looking at someone who they think, hey, that person says they know God, or that person says that they're a Christian, Uh, and then maybe it's a family member or family members, or maybe it's in the job place, and they know you as the righteous man or the righteous woman, and then you falter in their presence, and they're aware of your sin or your compromise or what you did wrong. And he says, man, when that happens, it's not just a bummer 
of the failure, but it's like polluting the well. It defiles the righteous man's testimony. It pollutes the righteous woman's testimony, and the wicked are no longer perhaps then open to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good because now the wells become polluted in their mind. And in their eyes now, they kind of struggle because the water has been tainted, if you would. And so again, the, the reminder here, it's wise to do all we can to uphold a good testimony before the unsaved. Very, very important. Again, the Bible tells us, redeem the time, make the most of every opportunity. And it tells us to, to conduct ourselves in a wise way before outsiders in the New Testament because people are watching, right? And we want to present to them a good representation of a righteous life so that they want to taste and see the Lord is good and they want to drink from the same well. Uh, and if we do something to compromise that, we can really do a great disservice and stumble people beyond the impact of just what it brings upon our own lives. Verse 27, he says, it's not good to eat much honey. So in the same way to seek one's own so, same way, to seek one's own glory is not glory, or that is, is not good. It's not beneficial or valuable. So, the, the picture here seems to be, uh, even as partaking too much honey can make you sick, in the same way that eating too much honey can make you sick, and that's gross, in the same way, he says, to seek your own glory, that's gross. It's just disgusting. And it's sickening for other people who are watching that going on to see one of us seeking our own glory, seeking to exalt ourselves, or try and impress others and draw attention. So seeking to glorify yourself in self-exaltation or whatever we may be doing to try and impress other people and to kind of in some way uh, make ourselves look good. He says what that does really is it actually just makes your onlooker sick because nobody likes to watch that, right? We all, nobody likes to show off. Right? And, and, and we can even do this in spiritual matters. And I think that we're, we're doing a, a great disservice to ourselves in Christianity if we think, oh, well, only people in the world do that. Because people, sadly, and maybe it's even a greater prostitution of the things of the Lord when people try and seek glory in a spiritual sense, where we conduct ourselves in a way where perhaps, for example, we pray with a group of other people, but the way that we pray in the presence of other people is we're trying to pray in a way to kind of almost impress everybody else around. Wow, listen to him pray. Wow, listen to her prayers. Well, what are we doing? We're subtly seeking glory for ourselves by trying to make ourselves look spiritual in front of other people. Or the way that we speak, maybe, or again, in the ways that we minister at times. We can minister whether we're you know, teaching the word of God or leading music or serving in a capacity in some way, whereby when we're doing that, we're doing it in such a way where unfortunately the, the sadness of it is we're drawing a little bit too much attention to ourselves. Uh, and, and we're really in a sense trying to do it where we're trying to impress others with how gifted we are, or how spiritual we are. And, and God cautions against that. God says, that, that's kind of gross. Uh, it's, it's a disgusting prostitution, really, of our flesh, and God cautions us about doing such, seeking our own glory. The Bible says, do you seek great things for yourself? And then the answer comes, seek them not. And those don't do that. Uh, better to humble ourselves, as we've seen many times, and let God lift us up if that's something that he wants to do. Verse 28, he says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit 
is like a city broken down without walls. Now, this, of course, speaks of the, the value of what we would refer to as just discipline uh, and living a disciplined life, living a life with boundaries or living a life, we might say, with the fruit of self-control and the importance of that. So, so important. That's why, again, we should never forget that part of the fruit of the Spirit Paul talks about in the New Testament, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and somehow when we start to get towards it, we, we always, the last thing to come, and self-control. That that's a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit being manifested in our life when we're staying connected to the Lord is that the Spirit of God, in the same way he gives us the grace to be more patient and more kind and more loving and more gentle and more joyful, he also gives us the supernatural grace to exercise self-control to have a degree of discipline and to keep our life under control, our passions and, and, and the way that we live, our lifestyle, to live in a way with discipline and self-control. And here he cautions in verse 28, look what he says, whoever has no rule over his spirit, and they use a comparison, is like a city broken down without walls. Now, a, a city would erect walls in that day really primarily to establish boundaries to shield them from being vulnerable to enemy attacks. So the walls were put up, and often there were guard posts on the walls, but the walls were basically just a barrier to slow down the enemy from being able to invade them. It kept them from being vulnerable. A city that did not have walls was way more vulnerable to enemy attack. They were way more in jeopardy of enemies and invaders being able to come in and to harm them or to overthrow them and to suffer loss. And he says, in the same way a city that has broken down walls or has no walls is in jeopardy and vulnerable to harm and being overthrown, he speaks of the danger of not having self-control in our life, not being able to have rule over our own spirit. That, that, that's a dangerous thing when we don't know how to regulate our own spirit inwardly, our internal person. Again, th that's the idea. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we regulate our human spirit and the Holy Spirit helps us to subdue our human spirit to rule over our passions and our desires and the things within us. That's why when Paul even speaks of the uh, you know, importance of avoiding sexual immorality in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he says each of you should learn how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the heathen who don't know God. And so what Paul's saying is this bodily vessel, which has natural built in by design, God-given sexual desires, he says, we have a responsibility to learn and all the more have the power by the Holy Spirit to regulate that. We're each to learn how to have control over our own bodily vessel in a way whereby it is not right to say, well, I just couldn't control myself. And God would say to the Christian, that's not true. You didn't control yourself, but it's not that you can't control yourself because God would never tell us to do something that we cannot do and that he wouldn't enable us. The Bible says we have to learn how to possess and control and regulate our own vessel. And here he says the wise man learns that's important and doesn't foolishly disregard that because whoever has no rule over his own spirit, boy, they're like a vulnerable person. You're just setting yourself up, God says, for problems, if you don't erect boundaries and regulate self, you're going to be vulnerable all the more to temptation and enemy attacks 
in your life. So again, just such an important thing to learn how to rule over our own inward spirit. And thankfully, by the grace of God, we can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, helping us to do that with our own practical self-discipline and so forth. Verse 1 of chapter 26, he says, As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Now, what he describes there in verse 1, snow in summer and rain in harvest, uh, both of those weather patterns were out of place and they didn't fit the season well. Uh, snow in the summer or rain in the harvest season, both of those things were out of place and they actually caused great damage. Uh, they would ruin the crops, they would cause severe loss. And he says, in the same way that those things are out of place and cause damage and ruin, he says, just in the same manner, so is honor not fitting. It doesn't fit for a fool. The idea is giving honor, let's say, for example, to promote a foolish person to a place of maybe responsibility or to entrust a fool with important things. God says, that's out of place. And that's not a very fitting idea. It's not a good match to give something important to a foolish person to manage. That if someone is behaving like a fool and conducting them's life like a fool, if you honor them or entrust them with something important, it's going to end up causing them to just damage what's important. That's one of the reasons why Jesus said you don't cast your pearls. These were swine. They were pigs. They're not going to appreciate it, right? They're not going to value what's important. And so he says, in the same way, if someone's living foolishly, God says, be wise. They're not a safe person to be entrusted with valuable things. Until they show they're not living foolishly, God would say, be careful, because they won't handle important things well, uh, because they're not going to appreciate it properly, and they don't have the faculties to manage it. Honor is not a fitting thing for a fool. Verse 2, like a flitting sparrow and like a flying swallow... So a curse without cause shall not alight. Now, this is certainly probably one of the more peculiar proverbs. Some translations render it different ways. It seems to picture here mainly birds, again, flapping their wings, whether it's the sparrow or the swallow, flapping their rings, uh, and they're just flying around, but they never alight. The idea is that they never settle down and land upon everything, uh, they just kind of fly around, but they never settle in one place and land. And in the same way, he says, because God's ultimately in control of what happens and what unfolds in his sovereignty, human curses, they may draw attention like the flapping of the wings of a bird, but they don't settle upon our lives with any real power or influence to do anything. So it's almost as if God's wisely saying to us, look, there's no need to be fearful of superstition and becoming superstitious and, oh my goodness, what about this curse? And what if this you know, curse comes upon me or someone has cursed me? And God says, look, it, you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to settle upon your life because God's ultimately in control in his sovereignty. Numbers chapter 22 to 24, remember Balak was trying to get Balaam to curse God's people and it wouldn't work, right? It wasn't happening because why? Because God's in control. Not somebody with, you know, a little doll and putting pins in it and calling down curse. Look, they can do that, he says, but that's nothing to be concerned about. Our life is in the hands of God. God's going to determine that. So as God's people, I think it's just a reminder to us that it is foolish for us as God's people to be superstitious about things in the way that we live. 
it's just a, a foolish mindset to fear that things could happen. The idea is, well, if if this happens, then oh my goodness, or you know, if 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 I don't wear my lucky shirt, then you know this is. And God says, well, it don't matter what shirt you got on. What's going to happen is going to happen. And again, that's just a, a foolish mindset of humanity thinking that superstitious things happen or walking under ladders or seeing a black cat. And God says, my sovereignty, just get, get over this stuff. You're a child of God. Your father is in determination of what's going to happen. And no curse is going to harm us when God's good hand of blessing is upon us, unless God is wanting to allow us to bring a curse, as the Old Testament speaks about, upon our life in a sense where we incur, in a sense, a cursed life because of our disobedience. And again, that may be something of the discipline of the Lord, but that's something God's allowing or God's doing by, in a sense, letting us maybe bring problems into our lives as somewhat of a form of discipline, as we'll talk about in some of our verses ahead. Now, Verse 3, he goes on, you'll notice this next set of verses kind of really as it works its way, started in verse 1, talking about the fool all the way down through verse 12, he keeps talking about the fool. In fact, if you were to lay out this chapter, verse 1 to 12 is all about the fool, verse 13 to 16 is about the lazy person, and then as he goes through the remainder of the chapter, he really just kind of zones in on troublemakers. Uh, so he goes on to talk about the fool in verse 3, he says, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. So a horse and a donkey often need force, right? The bit and the bridle, a whip, they need force and strong persuasion in order to go in the right direction. And then he says, in the same way, a rod for the fool's back. The idea is if a person sadly needs, and sometimes this happens, right? If a person needs painful experiences, to be the thing that really helps them to do what is right, to be guided in the right way. If they need pain to be guided in the right way, then God said the tragedy is that person's living like an animal. They're just living like an animal, like a stubborn mule or, or like a horse that they need a painful experience, strong persuasion to guide them in the right way. And tragically, that is often what it takes to get foolish people on a right path. They often need pain and hardship in order to be restrained from wrongdoing any further, or sometimes they need pain and hardship to be the thing that steers them back onto the right path or gets them in the right direction. They kind of need to be disciplined severely in order to do what they should, and it requires, you might say, pain in the fool's life to just get right and obey God. And look, that's not God's heart. But God will do whatever it takes sometimes, right? Reading through the book of Genesis right now as part of our devotional time, and I can't help but to think of Jacob. And what did God have to do with Jacob? God literally had to cripple Jacob in order to crown him with all the blessings and the good things he wanted to do. But it was necessary to wrestle Jacob into submission, and literally, God literally had to cripple him physically to bring pain and suffering and loss, but it was that crippling in his life circumstantially that really caused him to be broken inwardly and to bring him into a subdued condition where he would truly just let his life be governed by God and because he couldn't connive anymore because God submitted him, then really God could really begin to bless him. And sometimes that's a, a necessary process. Again, wise people can be gently directed by the Lord's voice and respond when they hear what God says and just do it 
And God says it's kind of a mark and a characteristic of a fool when it takes pain and severe things in your life to get you to go in a right way. Verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, here's a picture not necessarily of contradiction as much as it is realizing that given the situation, sometimes the response should be different depending upon what the given situation is. He says sometimes, verse 4, depending upon the situation, you have to beware that you don't become a fool yourself by engaging in debate and argument and conversation with other fools. So that's why he says, verse 4, be careful. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, according to his foolishness, getting in foolish disputes, lest you also become like the fool. That is, you start playing the fool by getting in the ring verbally and getting into this debate and dialogue, and you end up making a fool of yourself by arguing and disputing with the fool who's just talking in foolish ways. Now, in contrast, kind of like the other side of that, he says, by the same token, there is a time to answer a fool, according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. So the other side of that, there are other occasions where perhaps we don't want to let our lack of willingness to confront a fool because maybe we're just tired of the fool or, or we think, you know, I just don't even want to have a, I don't even want to engage this guy. Sometimes God says we should, if the Lord's leading, answer a fool, maybe in a form of reproof or authoritative correction, and we kind of confront their error if that's the best thing to do in a given situation lest by us being silent, we give the impression that they're right. And we let their foolishness be what is sown, or we let them think that we approve of their foolishness because simply maybe we were quiet and we didn't step in to rebuke them, and it's misinterpreted that they're doing something right when they're doing something incredibly wrong. Or perhaps in some way that you know, we agree with their error by just not answering them in their foolishness. Verse 6, he who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. The idea is bring self-harm. Like the legs of a lame man that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So entrusting a foolish person here, the idea is to convey a message or maybe handle a responsibility uh, that's important. God says that usually does not work out well. Uh, giving important responsibilities or a message to someone who's foolish. He says, if you make that mistake, you're going to bring about personal suffering. You're going to cripple productivity. You're going to find yourself with great disappointment. So again, looking instead for wise and reliable people to handle affairs, that's the wiser approach. Do you got an important message to convey? Do you got an important task to be taken on? He says, don't give that to a fool. Give that to a wise person. Give that to a reliable person. Be selective. Again, and I think that's important, especially if you know, think of, you know, occupationally in other ways. Sometimes, you know, situations we just, oh, man, but, but this person's got the most seniority. Or, and, but, well, right, but they're also a, a fool. So, but, 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 but they deserve it. Well, if you want to think about how long they've been here, maybe they do. But honestly, that person tends to be a little more foolish. So, Maybe this person is the better individual uh, because this is an important thing. And so, again, God, I think, just kind of reminds us we got to be careful sometimes that we're just not swayed 
you know, to assign things to certain individuals, or maybe if they're not the right people, God says, you want to make sure you got someone with a right heart and who's going to be wise in the way they handle things, lest you incur loss or struggle. He says, that's kind of the concept there. Verse eight, like one who binds a stone in a sling is like he, he comes back with this idea, who gives honor, opportunity, to the fool. Again, binding a stone in a sling. He's talking about, remember, David and Goliath when he would put the stone and, you know, swing it around and sling it out. Well, I mean, that's a useful tool. Nobody in their right mind is going to put a stone in a sling and then sew it in there. Because guess what's going to happen? You're going to, if you sew that stone into the sling and then you start whipping that thing around, one of two things has happened. Either it's going to come back and smack you right in the forehead. <laughs> Or it's going to hit somebody next to you because it didn't go out in the way that it's supposed to. In the same way, that would be utterly foolish to do because it's going to harm someone. Again, God says in the same way, you're going to harm yourself and suffer problems or other people are going to get harmed. He says, if in some way uh, you give honor to a fool and entrust them with something they're not ready to handle. Verse 9, like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So even as a drunk person's judgment is impaired, right? So they can't see correctly and usually in their drunken state, they don't act carefully to handle things. So you don't want in a drunken stupor to ask somebody to prune your rose bush because all they're going to do is make a mess and they're going to get stuck with the thorns because their you know, judgment is off and their perspective is off and they can't do things well because they're in that drunken condition. And as a result, they end up erring in their work and causing injury. In the same manner, he says, a foolish person is not able to handle things like God's wisdom, like a proverb, something that would be helpful to give wise advice to others. I think the picture here is because they're living like a fool, they have no proper basis to offer guidance to other people. But isn't it interesting sometimes that on occasions, people who live foolishly feel like that they have an entitlement to tell other people how to live. And to me, it's the most bizarre thing. It's almost as if someone's trying to pacify their own conscience by offering guidance and advice to others why their life's an absolute tornado. And God says here, this is very off track. If a person can't direct their own life well, if a person is making foolish decisions themselves, God just says they really have no business being a counselor in someone else's life. What they should focus on, if they're not foolish, is the wisdom of trying to get their own life in order, rather than feeling they have the right or entitlement to speak guidance and advice into other people's life. I mean, think about it. The foolish person giving guidance to other people is basically like asking a drunk person to give you direction. Who would do that, right? And so God says, this is just, in a sense, common sense wisdom. Verse 10, the great God who formed everything gives to the fool his hire, his payment, and the transgressor his ways. Again, this just pictures of this idea of sowing and reaping. God who controls and regulates everything that happens on the earth, monitors, he directs cause and effect, and here he cautions when someone lives foolishly, if they transgress the ways of God, if they rebel against God, they disregard God's word, and they kind of go in a wrong direction, he says, then what God will often do is God will allow them in their transgression to do such, but God will also make sure that they receive proper payment according to their own error. 
It's almost as if God says, if you want to walk in the works of the flesh rather than experience the fruit of my spirit, well, workers get paid their wages. And so if what you want to do is work at being rebellious and transgress, then God says, just know in that foolishness, he says, the transgressor will be paid their wages. And the idea behind that, again, is not God punitively trying to bring down the hammer. What God is trying to do is let people experience the problematic circumstances as the payment for wrongdoing in their life to help them realize, you know what, maybe I need to quit this job. Maybe in, in the sense of the job of being a fool or the job of rebellion. I need to stop this. I'm not liking the paycheck here. This is not good. I need to get a different job called obedience, a different job called following the Lord, doing things God's way. And he says, look, this reaping of what I'm sowing is not good. But yet God in his love really allows that foolish, sinful action to produce problematic things in our lives as the payment of that really to help us to be awakened and to get us to want to come out of that. Again, it's that sowing and reaping to actually help us get our lives back on the track in many ways. Verse 11, very picturesque. I've always loved this proverb, 2611. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Now, that is both, unfortunately, despite how cute dogs can be, one of the gross realities about dogs, right? is that dogs do this. You know, they go out into the yard, whether it's grass or this or that or whatever they find on a walk, and they eat something that they shouldn't eat, and as the result of it, it sickens them. It's something not good for them, so the natural thing that happens as a result of this habit, as they eat something they shouldn't, it makes them sick, and God has this thing hardwired in when something in you that's not supposed to be in you, that's not good, that's making you sick, is you expel it from your body, Right? So the dog vomits it out, and sure enough, what do those little or big dogs do? Sure enough, if you don't pay attention and you're not quick enough, they go right back over and they just start eating up that same vomit that they just expelled from their body. And it is the most bizarre thing, and yet one of the grossest habits of a dog, they return back and indulge again in the very gross, disgusting thing that was not good for them to start with, and they go back and they repeat the process and they start eating it again a second time. And they go back and indulge it again, and the very thing that sickened them. And he says, this is what it's like for a fool, just like the dog eats its own vomit, so the fool repeats their own foolishness. That the, the, the one of the pictures of a foolish life is someone who unfortunately does this that, that they go back and they repeat the same error in their life that caused them all kinds of gross negative effects and, and, and they go back and they partake of the same thing again and they repeat the same, and it's the insanity of it. And look, why, listen, why does a dog do that? For one reason, because it has the nature of a dog. That's why a dog does that. The reason a dog eats its vomit is because it is the nature of a dog. Why does a foolish person repeat the same gross, disgusting, foolish behaviors again and again and again? Because their nature needs to be changed. 
And the only way to stop the repetitious foolishness is a heart change. You know, the Bible speaks about that in the same way that a leopard can't change its spots because its nature, its DNA is to be a leopard. In the same way that a wolf can't resist eating a lamb because it's a wolf, right? A person can't stop being a fool on their own. But if God changes the heart and changes the nature, then a person can stop repetitiously doing foolish things. But that's so important to recognize. And so God here, in a sense, brings this to light. The only way to change is not really reform. It's being transformed as God does a work within us. And again, he pictures the, the, the insanity of the, the foolish life, repetitiously doing wrong things, going back to the same things once again, but that never changes until the hearts change. And thank goodness God can change hearts. That's a, a great encouragement. Verse 20, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? You know, thinks he's always right. There's more hope, God says, for a fool than for him. Again, this picks up on that concept of just you know, being teachable and in attitude rather than being someone with an unteachable spirit who kind of just you know, always thinks that they're right. Uh, they, they never interested in hearing input from other people. Uh, and God says, that's a mark of foolishness and pride operating in a dangerous way. And he says, there's a better chance that a fool will succeed than a person with an unteachable attitude, than someone who's not receptive and always thinks they're right. They won't consider the viewpoints of other people. He, he says, that, that's a real path towards problems. Verse 13, he now comes to the lazy man in verse 13 to 16 in some picturesque ways again. The lazy man says, there is a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. So notice, excuse making, God says, is one of the top symptoms of laziness. It's almost as if God says, let me show you some symptomatic effects of the root cause of the infection of laziness in the human soul. God says, if a person has a problem with laziness, here's one of the top symptoms. It will be excuse making. A lazy person always has, did they not? They always have a reason why they don't do this or why they didn't do that. And this is the picture here. The lazy man who may be supposed to go out to work so he can have a meal that night. The lazy man who's supposed to go do what he was assigned to do says, I can't go outside. There might be a lion out there. Well, first of all, there wasn't many lions roaming around Israel, so that was kind of a dumb statement, but it just is all kind of more picturesque. It's excuse-making. It's just making excuses. And so God here says this is an indication of when a person is lazy, and it's also a revelation. Maybe sometimes when we're being lazy, if we find ourselves making excuses that really many times aren't even reasonable excuses, saying, well, I would, but blah, 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 blah. And sometimes, in this sense, even in the idea of making excuses that imply, well, it's not safe, or I, I would do that, but I, I just don't want to. I don't want to risk something going wrong, and and kind of like this idea of I'm just trying to protect myself. And the idea here, I think, is kind of that even fear can be a cover-up for laziness. And here, I'm afraid to go outside. And God says sometimes this excuse of I'm afraid. The idea is you're just afraid to face challenges connecting to doing what you should. And God says, it's really not fear the issue. The fear is kind of a secondary thing of that you're just lazy so you won't push past your fear and have the courage to do the right thing. Instead, you just make excuses 
rather than really do the right thing. Again, it can be a very unrealistic excuse, even as this is oftentimes. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, here's a verse for your teenagers, junior hires, so does the lazy man on his bed. So again, another symptom of laziness, just simply enjoying, indulging sleep and rest too much. He's pointed this out before, more than necessary. Do we all need a degree of sleep? Absolutely. Does everybody need some rest for their physical refreshment? Most certainly, God cautions of overindulgence, enjoying sleep a little bit too much. We often talk about bedsheet deliverance. That's the idea, right? The old Mr. Snooze button and bedsheet deliverance. I mean, we all need that from time to time. He says, just like a door turns back and forth on its hinges, the lazy person just kind of keeps flip-flopping in bed. They, they love sleep too much, overindulgence and rest. And again, I think this can happen in many ways, whether it's enjoying sleep too much, enjoying rest too much. You know, I, I at times, you know, see certain people and I wonder, do you really need to vacation that much? Do you really need that many days off of work? I mean, I understand refreshment, but uh, that many? I mean, or is it perhaps maybe we're getting a little out of balance there? And so God says here, this, this can be a real symptom uh, of just really laziness, loving leisure and rest a little too much. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. Now, again, can I remind you, that should sound familiar. Proverbs 19.24 said the exact same thing. <laughs> so again, here's one of these repetitious Proverbs. God repeats this very proverb, which to me is one of the more hilarious Proverbs. Somebody's so stinking lazy, they put their hand down into the bowl of potato chips, and they're so lazy, they can't even lift their own hand back up and put the chip in their mouth. I mean, they just drop their hand down, and they say, honey, actually, could you just put that chip in my mouth for me? I mean, that's pretty lazy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's really, get me a picture there, someone so lazy that it actually causes them to not even take care of themselves. Don't even take care of themselves, of their own self, let alone take care of anybody else or serve anybody else. They neglect to take care of their own responsibilities. Boy, that's a, a real sad picture of how lazy people can get sometimes. Verse 16, the lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And here, just the picture is how lazy people, they, they lack energy, they lack initiative, they lack activity. But boy, isn't it amazing how sometimes people who are lazy that don't want to do things, they don't want to accomplish things, but amazing how sometimes they could be the greatest talkers. And, and they have incredible ideas, and they're smarter than all the clear-minded, sensible people around them who are busily occupied doing stuff, but, but they're, more, they're more wise and savvy, and they know more and got greater ideas. And the idea is they're great talkers, and they can debate their way out of proper personal responsibility. And he says sometimes that's just an indication. They're just kind of blowing smoke to cover up their own laziness. Verse 17, he who passes by, here's another picturesque one, and meddles in a quarrel not his own, notice we're keeping the doggy theme here, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. So here the idea, he starts to talk about now issues with kind of maybe troublemakers and problematic people. He cautions about meddling in arguments and quarrels that are not our business to become involved in. Does God call us to be peacemakers? Yes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be sons of God. 
but sometimes there are certain quarrels and disputes and situations that we're not called to get engaged in. And we have to be careful that it's not that we're meddling or that we feel the need to always be involved and solve everyone's problems. You know, that, that's not always the case. We're not invited into everybody's quarrels. Should we help when we're asked to maybe? Or, but we have to be careful that we're not overly, you know, kind of engaging and if we don't need to be involved because he says if you do that, he says, I can tell you what's going to happen. It's going to be just like taking a dog and grabbing it up by its ears. And, and what's going to happen? That dog is going to snarl and he's going to bite you right in the face. And God says, so be careful. If you have a tendency to meddle and you get into other people's problems, sometimes, he says, it can come back around and bite you. And you just get hurt in the process uh, and may not even really bring a lot of assistance. Verse 18, like a madman who throws firebrands and arrows and death, those are all harmful things, is like a man who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. So this picture is the person who kind of painfully betrays someone else. They deceive someone. So I think here the picture is more, uh, not necessarily someone who's a joker. And, and some kind of see the proverb this way. And if your mind goes that way, you could take it that way. If they, hey, you got to be careful. Sometimes joking around a little too much can end up causing problems. I see more here of the greater danger of someone being so mad in their head, you know, like firebrands and arrows and death. Those are pretty dangerous, destructive things. To me, this picture is the person deceiving his neighbor as someone who painfully betrays someone they're connected to, and then they try and just kind of dismiss it like it's no big deal. Oh, I was just joking. And, and what they do is they try and downplay something very painful. And there's some major betrayal, some major wound, and then God says it's really foolish, wrong, and harmful to make light of things like that. Don't make light of stuff like that. If something bad's happened, a painful betrayal, don't downplay its harm, God says. That's, that's really foolish. Be much wiser to just own up to the damage and lovingly try and do some damage control instead. Verse 20, where there is no wood... The fire goes out, and where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. And as charcoal to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So very picturesque here of, of a way to remind us that one of the ways to distinguish or, or extinguish, excuse me, relational fires is just to stop adding what? Fuel. Just stop putting fuel in the fire, God says. He says right there in verse 20, and I often remember this myself personally and try and help encourage other situations if I'm counseling, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. When there's no more wood to burn, when there's no more fuel being added on, the fire just goes out eventually. One of the best ways to just let a fire begin to diminish and not stoke the fire, stop putting more fuel on it. Cut it out. Just don't put more logs on there. Be wise. Just let the thing gradually simmer out and, and diminish, he says. Look, and in the same way, when there's no tail bearer, God says strife ceases. So sometimes it's essential to recognize unhealthy communication like wood on a fire or whose mouths are keeping the fire going, whether it's our own or it's someone else. Again, if we can't control our mouth 
and we keep doing things, then he says, look, you, you, got, you may need to make a disconnect. Do what you got to do to stop getting wood on that fire. And he pictures, even verse 21, I think somewhat more of like the troublemaker type personality because he says, just like charcoal to burning coals and wood to fire, their, their fuel to keep it burning, so is a contentious man, notice, to kindle strife. What's he picturing there? This reality that we would be wise to remember that some people, folks, listen, are just simply troublemakers. They are. Some people are just troublemakers. Whether it's with running their mouths or their attitudes or their action, and they just have a tendency and a history to always stir up issues in families, in relationships, in companies, in churches. Some people can just tend to have this propensity, and if a person is a chronic troublemaker always causing strife, he says, you may need to do a little disconnect there. You may need to do something to create a disconnect in some way, and in the same way, if I could use this analogy, let me leave this in your mind, and we'll conclude here with this this evening. In the same way, if someone was discovered to be a pyromaniac, right? We know what pyromaniacs do. They go around, they start fires that destroy things, burn things down, harm and hurt people, cause great suffering and loss. If someone's a pyromaniac and we find out they're a pyromaniac, wouldn't it be a little bit wise to do something to try and put a stop to that? To do something to try in some way take action against the pyromaniac in the same way sometimes with people who chronically start problems, there comes an occasion where the best and wisest thing to do is to take action to try and oppose stop people, some people and not let them continue to be troublemakers and problem starters all the time. Let's stand together. We'll pray and...